I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again close without that silly staircase between us. <laughs> Good job. I nailed it. <laughs> Welcome to He Read, She Read, the podcast where a couple of married bookworms discuss what they're reading and learning. Today we're discussing Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley. I'm Curtis. And I'm Chelsea. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. At the end of each month, Curtis and I discuss a book that we both read. It's like our own two-person book club that you get to listen in on. Our December book was Devil in a Blue Dress by Walter Mosley, the first crime novel in the Easy Rollins series. The book opens like most vintage noir, in a dimly lit bar with our protagonist. Ezekiel Easy Rollins is a black World War II veteran who moved from Houston to Los Angeles to work at a defense plant. He just lost his job, and his buddy Joppy has arranged a job for him to make sure he can make his mortgage payments. But Easy doesn't trust his new boss, DeWitt Albright. Albright asks Easy to find Miss Daphne Monet, a young white woman who is known to frequent black jazz clubs. Easy reluctantly accepts, and what follows is the story of how he becomes a private investigator. All is not what it seems, and Easy must follow his instincts in order to survive. Since this is a crime novel, we'll be discussing some violence in this episode, so sensitive listeners, be aware. Private investigator books are kind of in my wheelhouse, um, but this is kind of a new thing for you, I'd say. So what were your impressions, first off? I enjoyed it. So I don't read a lot of hard-boiled crime fiction, which is a term that we'll go into in a minute. But I did grow up watching a lot of old movies, and I love classic film. So film noir is something that I have experience with, and I just love the old black and white detective movies. Mm -hmm. So that's what this book read like to me. So I liked it from that aspect. I was excited to read it because when we talked about the mystery books that we love, we realized there were not very many, if any at all, authors of color on our mystery book lists. So I was excited to read this and get a new perspective in a genre that I do like. I like mystery, but this kind of crime novel is kind of new for me. Overall, it was okay. The structure of it, where he's not an established detective and kind of is just getting started. Parts of that I liked and then parts of it I didn't because more of my detective series are people that have been doing that for a long time. I would kind of akin it to... Why Cuckoo's Calling isn't my favorite of the Cormorant Strike books because it does a lot of groundwork and laying um, like foundations mm-hmm. for the later books in the series. So in that same vein where I think I like the later Cormorant Strike books better, I think I would like the rest of this series more. But I like the characters. I like the setting. Um, Post-World War II is a history that I'm familiar with. And it was nice to see a different perspective. I can see where you're coming from with that. This book, Devil in a Blue Dress, reads like a prequel to the Easy Rollins series because it's before he is an investigator. By the end of the book, and this isn't really a spoiler (laughs) because it's not about the mystery, but by the end of the book, he is kind of like, hey, I can be an investigator. And he's just about to launch his business. So this is sort of how he realized that he could be good at it. So, And I think that those later books are things that I would like more rather than this one, which is kind of like a, the prequel. Because historically, I don't really like prequels like mm-hmm. Star Wars. And <laughs> I'm trying to think of other prequels that I don't like. <laughs> well, that makes sense then. Um, so what we're going to do is go through a little bit of the historical context for this book. And then I'm going to give some literary context And then we'll sort of talk about each element of the book, what we liked, what we thought worked, what didn't. We'll give a warning for spoilers, but I think that this will be an interesting conversation to listen to if you're interested in noir fiction or detective novels. If you're like Curtis and you do like prequels, maybe you want to just listen to this episode and then read the rest of the series and skip this one. Well, I think it was 1948. Is that, that right? Okay. right? So post World War II, and Easy is one of approximately a million African American men that enlisted during the Second World War. 
And initially, most of these men were assigned as non-combat roles as either cooks or drivers because the army was still segregated at that point. So the units that are well known for being all black, um, like the Tuskegee Airmen or the 761st Tank Division, uh, sorry, Tank Battalion, Black Panthers, are well known for being segregated and then having pilots or tankers that did well and earned like presidential unit citations and all that. Um, but what Easy was a part of was the 92nd Infantry Division, which is the Buffalo Soldiers that carried that nickname from since uh, the Civil War. So that unit saw frontline combat in Europe, as was the case with Easy, um, and fought at the Battle of the Bulge when casualties were to the point where they needed soldiers and they couldn't afford to be segregated anymore. So Patton took a couple of thousand and Eisenhower approved a couple of thousand soldiers to be added to the frontline units uh, that were fighting in the Battle of the Bulge. And a lot of these men served with distinction. Um, a couple of notable stories that I found in my research was that in the early 90s, um, they did a research study that showed that there was racial disparity in the review process for heroism for a lot of these soldiers. Um, so it wasn't until 1997 that the first seven medals of honor were awarded for African-American soldiers during World War II. Uh, and those were awarded by President Clinton in 97 after the review process. So about 50 years later, it took for these guys to get the recognition that they deserved. But it bled into post-war, they realized that they had went over to Europe and the Pacific and fought for the expansion of rights in Europe, but then they came home and Jim Crow was still involved in the South, which is why Easy moved from Texas to California, because he wanted to try to get out of Texas, where a lot of that Jim Crow South was going on. And their experience in the war for these veterans, they used that as a jumping off point to say that, hey, we have earned these rights, we fought for this country, we deserve GI Bill, we deserve all these things that other soldiers are getting, and then in the same way that we're fighting for rights abroad, we need to fight for these rights at home. So that was the cool part, is a lot of that bled into the civil rights movement in the 60s, because these guys that came back from war realized that they needed to stand up and actually fight for the rights if they wanted to get them, because the society wasn't going to change on its own. Um, I just finished The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And there's a pretty famous and significant passage in there where he cites the return of black soldiers from World War II as the turning point in history. You read a lot of books about military veterans who then go into investigation or go into careers in CIA and those kind of roles when they get home from the war. So I'm curious to hear how this sort of compared to those books that you read, why you think veterans make such good private investigators. Well, it's it's a problem-solving thing. So a lot, some of the books I read or a lot of the famous fiction um, characters like Jack Reacher or Elvis Cole, Joe Pike, those guys are either investigators in the army, so like a Cormoran Strike, um, where they're military policemen, and then that's a good avenue for civilian private investigating. Or they're infantry soldiers who, when they come home, they have a lot of problem-solving skills, can handle themselves in like dangerous situations. So like in the case of Easy Rollins, where he's an infantryman who fought in Europe, and he doesn't really have a lot of options. So like when he gets home... And he fights, at, or he works as a machinist, and he does like the physical labor piece. But when he gets fired, a lot of the jobs available to him are going to be like favors and doing odd jobs, which leads him into the private investigating portion. But then would look at it for the rest of the series. Why he realizes he's good at it is it's a lot of problem solving, it's a lot of talking to people, and just trying to get answers for whatever people are looking for. So it, it lends itself to people who are disciplined and can operate at any hour of the night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is an important yeah, I guess part so. too. Because he's out part well, either out drinking, which is another military skill, <laughs> or he has, or he has to, you know, convince people to give him information. So it private investigating and police work lends itself well to veterans just because they're either 
have seen combat or know how to prioritize time and solve problems is the gist of it. So a lot of the series that I read are either guys who used to be military policemen or were combat soldiers like special forces or just infantry guys because Mm -hmm. then they don't really have any other options. One thing that I'm thinking of as you're talking is just that these characters, especially in the hard-boiled detective genre, are expected to be hyper-masculine. Yes. Extremely masculine characters. I think that the military is seen as one of the most masculine professions, especially in prior time periods. That's that's what I was going to say, especially in... Like the greatest generation, quote unquote. So World War Two. That's definitely as how like as it was how seen. it's perceived. Because if you didn't serve in one component or the other during like the biggest world war defending your country, you're kind of looked down upon a little mm-hmm. bit. So the guys that are celebrated from that era are those that actually enlisted and fought overseas. Yeah, and so I I definitely think, especially in a genre where sort of that like violent masculinity is important. That ties a lot to war experiences. Agreed. One other thing that I thought was interesting and that I I liked throughout the novel was Easy frequently refers to his time in service. Yes. And so we get a lot of his backstory from that and how it shaped him. And so we see how that did influence him in the work that he's doing. And he talks about having a little voice in his head. Yeah. So I picked up on that one and whenever it showed up, that's like, very obvious PTSD mm-hmm. and just it brings up a lot of interactions with either like concentration camps or when he remembers like killing a soldier with his bare hands. So that's a very vivid picture of PTSD is just this little voice in the back of your head that's either telling you to do things and like he either listens to it and is like gives into his violent tendencies or mm-hmm. at sometimes he has to learn how to harness that energy. Yeah, he had an interesting relationship with that voice because you're right, sometimes he listened to it and it helped him and sometimes it was telling him to do something and he had to push against it and go another way. That was a cool relationship. I like the way that Mosley wrote that and it was, I think, telling of the soldiers that were coming back from World War II because Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of science dealing with PTSD at that time and it was very much, you know, Either either shell-shocked and you're in a hospital in padded rooms for the rest of your life, or you just kind of have nightmares and dealt with it and never talked about it. I, I thought that was the only symptom that seemed apparent in the book. Did you, you notice any other? I didn't other? see anything else either. So it's very subtle. Maybe that would have been too much for the novel. Well, I think a lot of that conversation is more in vogue these days, and not so much in the 90s. That's true. Like, this book was written in 1990. and. Yeah. But it to me, that impresses more that he was able to capture it vividly uh, without just being uh, like overdoing it. Okay, so I've hinted at talking about genre a lot. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. You're such a nerd. I know. <laughs> yeah, after I just spent about five minutes talking about, post- <laughs> talking about history. <laughs> post-World War II history. But go, go ahead. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Enjoy your holiday car rides with a free audiobook from Audible. Audible's offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash hereadsheread to download a title for free and start listening. Go to audible.com slash hereadsheread to get started today. We've downloaded Christmas at the Grange, a Lady Hardcastle mystery to listen to on our next road trip. There isn't any risk in trying Audible, and you can cancel any time without jumping through hoops. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash hereadsheread. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash hereadsheread for your free audiobook. So I've been referring to this book as being in the mystery genre, the crime genre, noir, and hard-boiled detective. I was with you up until hard-boiled. <laughs> okay. So I don't know what that so, is. So hard-boiled is probably the most specific term that we can apply to this book. Hard-boiled detective fiction is born out of the pulp fiction movement of the 1930s and 40s. And basically, pulp fiction, these were like cheap magazines where short stories and just, it was almost seen as like trashy entertainment (laughs) where those things were published. And then that obviously boomed because people were having such fun reading these stories. A lot of them had to do with sex and violence and things that were maybe a little bit taboo. 
And then that was born into Pulp Fiction novels. So hard-boiled detective fiction is out of that movement. You can maybe, if you think of Pulp Fiction covers, you can kind of picture them. They're usually vintage, bright colors, like half-naked like, women. Yeah, I'm thinking revolvers and fedoras. Yes. Okay, yep. So that's Pulp Fiction. So the encyclopedia definition of hard-boiled fiction is a tough, unsentimental style of American crime writing that brought a new tone of earthy realism or naturalism to the field of detection, detective fiction. Hard-boiled fiction used graphic sex and violence, vivid but often sordid urban backgrounds, and fast-paced, slangy dialogue. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again close without that silly staircase between us. <laughs> Good job. I nailed it! <laughs> Perfect Fred McMurray. Fred McMurray impression. So that kind of like snappy dialogue, kind of cheesy lots now. Of, lots, of but da- lots of dames. Lots of dames. Um, but basically, sex, violence, a detective, urban setting, that's hard-boiled. So you can see where Devil in a Blue Dress fits in with that. Yep. So there are several elements that go into this. We're just going to focus on each element and talk about it in the context of Devil in a Blue Dress. And we'll warn you when spoilers come up. So the first element is that the protagonist of a hard-boiled detective fiction novel is an outsider or an outcast. So we've got that in a couple of ways, but... Mainly, it's because of his race. So Yeah, that's like the most obvious. Most, yeah, so because he, it's the 1940s and he's black and he gets, you know, unjustly investigated by police, for one, not respected in his workplace by his white boss. Just all those factors coming together and also the fact that he's a veteran coming back from a war where he's not appreciated. Mm-hmm. And there's mention of... Like, he talks about when he's driving across town through white neighborhoods versus going back to where he owns his house in a black neighborhood. So even though this is Los Angeles, California, not overt Jim Crow laws, I don't think. Did Los Angeles have Jim Crow? Uh, um, it, it's more common in the South, you'd think. but like Some states are surprising, so I guess yeah. that's something that I should look up. But. But, but coming off of what you just said, where he's an outsider... He's also a little bit of an outsider with his other black friends. I feel like that's what makes him such a compelling character, is he's at odds with both worlds that he's trying to be in, mm-hmm. and it just creates all the tension for the story. Definitely. And I think that'd be interesting for the later books, because when he tries to establish himself more as an investigator, he's only going to be in both of those worlds more. I'm, I'm curious and interested to see how that would grow, or that outsider status would differ as the series progresses. Okay, so another aspect of the protagonist for a noir or hard-boiled detective novel is that the protagonist is not necessarily a hero or a good guy, but the reader still empathizes with him. Yeah, which kind of plays out where he's not an established detective. Even established detectives in these noir novels wouldn't necessarily be, quote, good guys. They're more like vigilantes. Oh, okay. But I take this more so, like, within the first 50 pages or so, he's cheating with one of his, like, best friend's girlfriends Mm -hmm. while his best friend or one of his friends is drunk in the Mm -hmm. next room. So not normally, like, behavior that you would root for, but you still find yourself empathizing with him. Well, I think one of the main things, it's like, automatically you you want him to keep that house like he talks about what pride he has in home ownership he's so proud of having something for himself and owning something and you really want him to pay his mortgage so you don't care who he kills or beats up or what he does in order to to keep it i think that's the funny part about mosley's writing is he's making you care about something that normally you wouldn't even really think about you're like i really want this dude to pay his mortgage but then that just leads to so much (laughs) (laughs) but yeah he's not necessarily a a good guy in terms of traditional law and order he's more of a vigilante um he is sort of committing justice on his own terms violent and yeah like you said within the first few pages he's 
having sex with his buddy's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And I do think, you know, there might be some other noir detectives that are maybe worse guys. I would think so, (laughs) yeah. but... Um, But Easy's definitely not perfect. Another aspect of noir, or this genre, is fatalism and nihilism, showing that the American dream is an illusion and that the hero is sort of on this fatal path. There's an element of negativity in this kind of detective fiction where it's almost like, well, a lot of this is meaningless and none of it's going to matter anyway. And I definitely saw easy thinking like that throughout the book. Oh, yeah. And especially when he's having his interactions with the cops. He could be like as innocent as anybody, but he's just going to get pulled off the street and taken to a back room and beat up into like either with planning evidence or just beating him until he confesses just because he's black. And mm-hmm. that's the nature of law enforcement in Los Angeles at that time. And probably today. And well, it's carries on in a lot yeah. of places, but that shows that like, even though he's trying to build this dream scenario for himself where he is a homeowner and has a job, there's still components of the American dream that will not be available to him in that time period purely because of his race, mm-hmm. where he doesn't have the freedom to drive where he wants, like you talked about earlier, where he's driving through black or white neighborhoods and is worried about getting pulled over. Um, he has to constantly worry about these two cops finding him and pulling him into the station and beating him up. It's the path that he's on doesn't have a clear ending. Like even though it's he's got the dream laid out, there's going to be a lot of obstacles in his way just because he's black. Mm -hmm. And he's a loner. So all this that he goes through is really only so that he can keep his house and pay his mortgage. And at a certain point, he's like, is this even worth it? Mm -hmm. It's not worth it, but I'm just going to keep going because what else am I going to do? Like I'm wrapped up in it anyway. That's like a pretty classic fatalistic noir trope. But he's, he doesn't have a significant other or a spouse or children or any family around him. I mean, he cares about his friends somewhat, like that kind of comes across a little bit. Well, to the extent that they'll be drinking buddies and have all like drink pints of bourbon at one time. I guess. But But he doesn't, he's not doing these things for someone. And so I think that's pretty classic too of like the loner. Um, and so where does his motivation come from? It's kind of like he's just propelled along by the plot and that he got wrapped up in this thing. So he's just got to see it to the end anyway. Yeah. I mean, a, a big part early on is he could get his job back at the plant if he only like kisses the ring and kowtows to his boss, but he refuses to mm-hmm. do that because like we said earlier, when these guys fought overseas and realized that they like had a certain level of expectation for how they should be treated when they get back home and it's not the case, they're not letting that go. So like his boss is calling him fella and not really, he's dehumanizing. He's not giving him respect. No, and dehumanizing him in a lot of ways. And he just walks up to him and says, look, my name's Mr. Rollins. You're going to treat me a certain way. And if you don't, it's no skin off my nose. Like I'm going to find my own way. So that's a big component too is, he has set his own expectations for how he wants to be treated and he's going to find ways to make sure that that happens. I loved that moment in the book because mostly just did such a good job writing it that you're almost like, is he going to go get his job back? And then he just totally demands the respect and leaves. And it's just something that he had to do for himself, yep. for his dignity. Um, and that definitely endears the reader to him more. So, I feel like with this next item, we're probably going to get into more of the spoilers of the book. So fair warning, spoiler talk. Well, we have to get to the titular devil in the blue dress. Yes. So So the femme fatale is a key component in noir detective fiction here. So the key with the femme fatale, she's got to be beautiful. Of course. And she's never what she seems. She's always hiding something or sort of two-faced. And she manipulates the protagonist to her own advantage. This is Daphne Monet to a T. Mm-hmm. The most obvious thing, she's not what she seems. Daphne Monet is a mixed-race woman 
who is passing as white. Easy thinks he is finding a white woman, and then later in the novel, it comes out that she's passing, which basically means like her skin is light enough that people can mistake her for being white, mm-hmm. and she just goes with it because it gives her certain advantages. Right. Which the advantages that she gets are made obvious throughout the book as we see how easy is treated compared to Daphne Monet. She manipulates easy with her womanly wiles and sort of (laughs) tricks him. And the book really revolves around her quite a bit. Mosley did a good job of kind of keeping her motivations close to the chest until the end. So you kind of never really know what her end game is until he wants you to and it gets exposed right near the end she is very good at manipulating people to get what she wants she is ingrained and has her little fingers like manipulating the puppets with a lot of the side characters like coretta and joppy and all of that so she is used to getting her own way and is used to manipulating people to get what she wants and in the end, she gets what she wants because she sort of escapes from it all. Yeah, but at the same time, is that really, at, at the end of the day, what she wanted? I feel like she wanted to insert herself into the society that re- would reject her if they knew that she was mixed race. I, I think it's kind of the parallel with Daphne and Easy, where Easy is realizing who he is and how he wants to be treated and where he fits in the world. Daphne's kind of in this in-between zone where she doesn't really know what she wants. She doesn't know where she fits. And in the end, she kind of just escapes. Mm -hmm. So in the end, Easy gets to be in society and have the role that he wants, where he's a private investigator, he owns his own house, he's involved in his neighborhood, and Daphne's just kind of in the wind. I That's really typical for this genre, though. And, like, let's be clear, she's a character in the book, but she is not a character. Like, she has no characteristics about her other than her beauty and her sexuality. And that's something that's a major problem in this genre is the way that women are treated. And so I'm I'm curious. So this was written in 1990. Mosley is still writing, not necessarily just this series, but he's writing other crime fiction. I'm curious to read something like that he wrote in the last year or so to see if the treatment of women is as poor or if that has improved over time Mm -hmm. because really like think about all the female characters in the book they're used for sex they're used by men and then they go away yep and that's all that she's there for that manipulation right and that's yeah that's the other thing she's there as basically like a toy and yet she's still sort of like cast into the bad guy category, sort of. If there was something about the book that I really had a problem with, it would be the treatment of women. But I was also expecting that just because like I know how noir is. It definitely didn't make it easier when he was writing like basically the sexual assault scenes Mm -hmm. because I just felt like that was gratuitous. Like she talks about some really weird like relations with her father. That kind of backstory I didn't think was necessary um when easy goes to rescue her she's just naked why um and so like if there was one big problem i have with the book it was that just the gratuitous unnecessary sexual behavior yeah and like on the one hand i had a major problem with it but on the other hand i was expecting it because because it's pulp it's pulp fiction and so i'm not saying it's right but it's the shock value yeah So I'm not ready to give up on the series because of that, because I'm curious to see if Mosley veers away from that trope as the stories go on. But that's definitely like, yikes, that was bad. They, I thought, so we're going to talk about the movie in our bonus episode on Patreon, just to interject a little bit. Like I thought they did a little bit better with that in the movie. Which was refreshing for me. Yeah, it would have been tough to watch otherwise. It still wasn't like a great portrayal of women. I would be really curious. I think a lot would have to be done if they were to remake the movie today in order to give like well-rounded female characters. I think we should put that plus a casting choices in the Patreon episode. Okay, we will. (laughs) Did you 
agree with the way that she's portrayed as like this devil in a blue dress or i mean i think a lot of that was just for the catchy title i agree but because it isn't like she's going around as like a spree killer and doing all the stuff like no i just think it's i think women in general are kind of demonized i just i think it i think it speaks more to how the men in the book view women in general than her specifically they see them as vices or Mm -hmm. like things that are gonna be detrimental to them or trap them but not as like people right good take okay so next the protagonist is basically nocturnal where most scenes occur at night so it's like a very shadowy and dark atmosphere we get a lot of that with the secret clubs and upstairs bars where joppy has his place and just a lot of the investigations are like he's getting phone calls in the middle of the night and needs to go out on the road and it just shows that the relationship with like like our parents said nothing good happens after 10, 10 p.m <laughs> but it's kind of true in the sense where he's out at night either looking for Daphne before he is introduced to her or she's dragging him out to take her places when she finally like calls him in the middle of the night. And it's just, that's when all this stuff is exposed. Another key element of noir fiction is that it's written in first person, always from the detective's point of view. Yeah, and we had a lot of monologues from Easy, either as flashbacks to the war or as to how he's processing what's happening and kind of the his thinking and it's almost a lot of these books it's almost like they're writing later in life looking back on their work that's the way i read it too is like he's telling his story from an armchair with a butt with a bottle uh-huh. of scotch like years later just telling this story yeah and i think that's pretty common across the board yeah the uh elvis cole books are written in first mm-hmm. person like that where he's telling it from that perspective so I'm used to that in this kind of genre, is just hearing a lot of first person. I like it, and I liked I liked getting to be inside Easy's head. Yes. And I thought that was important because we got to see everything from his perspective. An obvious element was that there has to be a mystery. Yep. Usually a murder. There were several murders in here. Well, it started off with the disappearance and kind of like... The like, that investigation. Where is Daphne? Yeah. Was the first mystery, and then it was Coretta's murder. Being like, mm-hmm. who did it? Why are they thinking that it's me? And then it was what's the other guy that got murdered? Um, Richard. I think so. Yeah, and he was a businessman. Yeah, and he was kind of he, he had he, pictures of a candidate for mayor. That was in the movie. But there was in the book there was that same element of there were two candidates for mayor. Mm-hmm. One of them, like, was running a child sex ring. And was also a molester. Yeah. And so, like, part of the mystery was that people had that information on him. Right. And then the other part of Richard was that he was or he was one of the people that was getting manipulated by Daphne and had right. her money. And then the other candidate for mayor, how was he involved? He, well, he had the relationship with Daphne. Like, right. Where he thought that they were going to get married and he hired... Um, DeWitt Albright to find her when she Mm -hmm. went missing and ran away with $30,000. Yeah. So that's the whole component where it brings in easy because DeWitt can't go to these jazz clubs, so he needs a patsy to go in and start looking for Daphne. Mm -hmm. So multiple murders, missing people. We've we've got the mystery laid out. (laughs) Something just that I know from film noir, so like the detective movies of the 1940s, it's pretty common for there to be a political element as well, where because there's someone cre- in city government yeah. that either they're investigating or that's... And I think that's more of a tool for them to create ties that the investigator can use later on. So like in this case, Tom, the candidate for mayor that had a clean slate, was in a relationship with Daphne and was not running a sex ring and being horrible. He is grateful to Easy for finding her and everything, and so he sort of owes favors, and Easy is able to use that to his advantage. Yeah. Did you feel like the mystery was propelling you as you read? I don't know. Like I said, this isn't my favorite mystery book, and I feel like I would like the later books more. 
mainly because it was so disjointed for me. Like there was, I, I enjoyed the parts where Easy like was confronted with the police, and we got to see like how he was dealing with a lot of mistreatment and going back and forth for trying to find Daphne. But like once Daphne called him and like kind of tried to involve him in her schemes, then it kind of all went by the went off the rails for me a little bit. Yeah. I was less invested in the plot. Like, I didn't really care who did it or how it would unravel, but I cared about Easy. Yeah, I just wanted him to get his money and pay his mortgage. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I I cared about him as a character. I cared that he came out of everything okay. Yep. But beyond that, I didn't really... I mean, it was a page turner. Like, I wanted to know what would happen next because there's a lot of action. But it's not like... It's not like the mysteries that I read where there's like one murder and the whole book really revolves around that and you can see how everything is connected. The mystery fell a little bit short for me, but the establishment of the character was awesome and makes me want to try another one. Right. And I fell in love with Mouse just because he's unpredictable. Mouse is one of Easy's buddies from Texas that he calls in off the bench to be like, hey man, I'm in the situation... I need you to come help me out. And Mouse just comes with a bunch of guns and knives and starts... Like, ready to do whatever. Just down for violence wherever. So I like that relationship between Easy and Mouse where they've kind of got history. Um, Mouse kind of drug Easy along for a double murder before Easy joined the army. So Easy calls Mouse and then when the situation got too much for him to handle. So I like that relationship and I like Mouse as a character. For me, it was more of the characters than the mystery to me with all the mayoral intrigue and like campaign stuff i don't really care about that and daphne was just like you said she doesn't really have any personality Mm -hmm. like she's a flat character yeah it would have been completely different if daphne was like a murderer that he had to catch and was like playing tricks and like calling him to like taunt him Mm -hmm. but she's just somebody that has a lot of money that she stole and is trying to get away clean. Because this book had to establish the character of Easy, that's its primary function. It did a good job of that. Oh yeah, completely successful. a great job of establishing the time period and the struggles that Easy was facing. The mystery itself, I don't think that was the most important part anyway. No. I would read another one because I like Easy. I think that he's a really interesting character. And then, obviously, the urban setting is Los Angeles, California. I thought that Mosley did a good job of describing setting. Yeah. Part of the urban setting is the nightlife. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have situations where people are going to be out at all hours of the night, where they're going to be drinking, where they're going to be at the clubs. Like, that's just such a important part of the genre and part of what makes these kind of fun to read. Because yeah. there is that, like, so that Pulp Fiction, that like trashy element of these are people that are out partying all the time and they're they're not all great people, oh. but it's fun to read about. Easy drinks so much bourbon. Like, <laughs> oh my they God. all drink so much. But it was the 40s, so it's like not It's like as, water. Yeah, it's watered down. <laughs> like they, they split it half and half just so they can fill more bottles. I so. don't know. Um, there, there's either that argument or it's so strong that they just... <laughs> they're just blacked out all they, the time. Exactly. <laughs> okay, the violence is another important thing in this hard-boiled genre. I, I could have done with more violence. Seriously? I'm completely honest. I think it's just I'm used to a, a different kind of violence. Like, I could have done without a lot of the... Sexual assaults that are either in the book or talked about. about. And there's like some knife fights and a couple of shootouts, but I'm used to more shootouts or more confrontation. In the books that you read with the other detectives? Yeah, just because I think it's because they're more established and are used to confronting violent people. So that's something that they go out and seek out and just kind of the situations that they get their smells into. Easy's kind of just dipping the toe in the water for this one. That's true. A lot of the violence that occurs is not intentional or he goes in not thinking that it is or it happens to him and is unfortunate. Like the violence I think that was difficult to read was like reading about the police beating him up. Um, But then obviously he's got confrontations. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was expecting it to be violent. I thought definitely like I could do without any of the sexual violence, but the rest I thought was like the perfect amount for me where I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to have nightmares. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I I could keep reading about it and it, it wasn't super explicit either. No. Um, and descriptive, even like with the sexual assaults and stuff, it wasn't super descriptive, but I, I felt like the violence was just enough. <laughs> I'd be interested to see if it gets to be different as he progresses. Yeah. Like as he like becomes a detective more, if that'll change. But It's also a short book. Yeah. So how much room for violence is there really in 200 pages? Well, we can do the math if we want to. But... <laughs> so we've, we've settled on proper amount of violence. Okay. So... <laughs> We really love the characters. We like Easy Rollins. We want to root for him. The plot, we're both kind of meh about. Yep. Not fans of the misogyny. And we liked the like setting, the basic things of a book, like setting and first person, like book report, grade school book report stuff. We liked all the grade school book report stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, the basis for the genre we all are in on anyway. So like we like yeah. detective stories where you know it's got those first person elements but we could have done with some of the side stuff which maybe mostly we'll do in the next books but we're intrigued enough that we want to read the next ones yeah so that's important so no happy ending in these detective books i don't know i kind of felt like easy got what he wanted in the end like he's got his house paid for the mortgage. He has a job that he's excited about and feels like he has a place in the world. In the sense of the devil in the blue dress, like Daphne, Monet, that whole thing kind of fell flat and wasn't really like a happy resolution for me. But for Easy, I felt like in the end of the book, he ended up where in a good spot. It's kind of like where he started though. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, even though there's so, personal growth, he's kind of back where he was at the beginning of the book. Like, yeah. I mean, there's some character growth, but like, it's not an overtly romantic or exciting ending. No. Like, it's just very like, he, at the end of it, he's with his friend. He's obviously happy to have his house. And mm-hmm. he's, I don't even know if he's excited about his new job as a PI or if it's more of like, well, this is what I do now. <laughs> I think it's more of the latter yeah. where he just realizes he's good at it and he's just going to keep doing yeah, it. Like, well, this is this is who I am now. <laughs> Definitely not happy for Daphne and no. for a lot of the characters that got murdered <laughs> or, it's got, hard or got arrested for corruption or it's like stuff to, like that. It's hard to feel happy for them when they get murdered. <laughs> but like... It's, there's not a romantic ending. No. And even in the end, it kind of ends up like Mouse figured it out and kind of just cuts easy in with some of the cash at the end. Yeah. It's like very, like Mouse. Almost anticlimactic. Yeah. Because Mouse figures out who it is, shoots them in the face, figures out that who Daphne is and that she's mixed race. And then they go and get Daphne's money and then split it. Yeah. Like it, it, it all kind of fell flat for me at the end. Again, that's what I was expecting, though, because that's of the of the trope. On brand. Yes. On brand. <laughs> it's on brand for detective fiction. <laughs> um, the last element that we're going to talk about here is direct and simple prose. There are no flowery descriptions. You're not going to get any nature descriptions or even super detailed visual descriptions of anything. It's just very direct, to the point, and straightforward. I found that really refreshing mm-hmm. because he does a good balance of describing the scene and giving us just enough on the character descriptions that we know who they are. Um, like when we met Joppy, who's the bartender, and the fact that he was a fighter and had this type of personality. Like, yeah, you can picture Joppy in your head. Yeah, but it's not overdone. Right. Like nothing in this book is overdone except for the sexual violence. Yes. And it's, yeah, in 200 pages, like, a lot is packed in there. I'm always, I really admire writers who pack a lot into few words. Yes. And Mosley is definitely one of those writers. So with very direct, very simple language and just, like, a very straightforward, to-the-point character, he manages to illustrate the nightlife, 
the racial landscape of California at that time, and the character of who Easy Rollins is within these short 200 pages through mostly action and reflection on the part of the character. I think probably what I liked most about the book was just Mosley's writing and Easy's clarity and honesty about what was happening to him. And he does such a good job of sort of like reflecting on what's happening and then moving on so that you can be struck by it and you can think about it. But like he's he's thought about it. He's moving on. We don't get like a bunch of pages of him reflecting on what's happening. Yeah, it's very quick where he like has his realizations Mm -hmm. and he gets to his conclusions. He solves his problems and moves on to the next thing. I'm definitely interested in reading more of the Easy Rollins series, but I'm almost more intrigued to read more of Mosley's work yeah. outside of the series to see if maybe some of the elements that I didn't like so much could be fixed in a different book of his. Yeah. I'm intrigued just to read the second book and then either recommend people just start with number two if it actually takes off and is a lot better than this one. Because I'm pretty sure they're standalone. Oh, most like, of most, most of, of these are. books yeah, you are can, like that. Yeah, you can read them on their own. But overall, I think we enjoyed the story enough that we watched the movie and we'll probably continue on either with the author or the series. And I think the trap people could fall in is like read easy and think, oh, this is only happening in the 40s. That You could modernize this story very easily. So easily. Like it could, you could either see this being replicated for like a noir type for the 40s but you could even take the story and the characters put them in today's shoes where he's a iraq veteran and it would play like a lot of the same things would happen to him agreed and honestly i'd be super interested in that adaptation (laughs) but you're totally right it's it is timely you can read this and absolutely like the things that easy is dealing with are not in a bubble in the 1940s. No, 70 years later, he would still deal with a lot of those same things. Yeah. We are going to, at the end of recording this episode, we're going to record an episode where we talk about the film adaptation, which was made in 1996, I want to say. With a young Denzel. I love young Denzel Washington. He's got that (laughs) strut. He is wonderful. And he was so perfect as Easy Rollins. But who is today's Denzel? Michael B. Michael Jordan. B. Jordan. And he would be so perfect. Anyway, we'll talk more about that on the Patreon episode. Okay, Chelsea, so we'll transition from talking about Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, what is your recommendation for the week? I'm recommending a book that I haven't read, but that I want to read. So a big part of this book has to deal with the Great Migration, which involved a lot of African Americans moving from the Jim Crow South to other urban populations where they could escape the Jim Crow laws and sort of pursue the American dream. So easy moving from Houston to Los Angeles is a prime example of the Great Migration. So one of the books that I have heard recommended on multiple podcasts, um, including the Stacks podcast, with Tracy and seen it around Instagram because of Tracy's recommendations is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And after reading the Easy Rollins book, I am that much more intrigued to read The Warmth of Other Suns and to sort of get the true nonfiction historical background of the Great Migration and how that influenced Easy. Because that's like a really key part of the book was that he's living in this neighborhood of fellow black neighbors who all moved from Houston or other areas of the South to Los Angeles to sort of have this new life. And so I'm, I'm interested because that's not a history that I know everything about. So like I, I, someone could say the Great Migration, like I would know what it is, but I couldn't explain it to you in very many terms and I couldn't put like human faces on it necessarily. So The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. All right. My recommendation for this week is Black Knights, the story of the Tuskegee Airmen by Lynn Homan. So we mentioned it when we were going over the historical portion, but a lot of the World War II service 
for African Americans was in segregated units or in units with white officers or senior leaders. Um, this is a story about um, the first African American fighter and bomber pilots in the U.S. military. So this story covers um, the period pre-war and then throughout into Korea of the first black fighter pilots and bomber pilots in the U.S. military. And then the relationship that we talked about where they had to fight to serve. And then also when they were done serving, they had to fight for civil rights back home. So recommend this one. It's got interviews with the pilots and their families and a lot of research dealing with their fight to make sure that they could serve. So um, also, if you've ever watched Night at the Museum 2, where the, there's the guy that's just yelling, the Tuskegee Airmen are moving down the hall, and always like narrating what they're doing. Do you remember that? No. Oh, come on! I okay. Just, I don't love those movies as much as you do. Okay, watch Night at the Museum 2, and there's a group of Tuskegee Airmen, and one of them is always narrating what they're doing. <laughs> any i'm trying to think if there are any good films um the most recent one was red tails which was not that good unfortunately it was like a george lucas pet project that kind of flopped um but another good historical like figure from that time period um is doris miller was a cook on one of the navy ships in pearl harbor and got the navy cross for taking a machine gun and trying to shoot at some Japanese fighter pilots. That story um, was Cuba Gooding Jr. in Pearl Harbor. So that's another. Okay. Yeah. So he's a real guy. Um, He should have his own movie. He should. There's probably some really good documentaries on Netflix. We can look them up and put them in the show notes. Thank you for subscribing and sharing He Read, She Read. We love reading your comments, your posts, and your reviews on iTunes each week. Our buddy read for next month is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Oh, I have to see when that episode's going to air. Oh, nailed it. (laughs) That episode is going to air January 29th. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, please do. Those written reviews make a huge difference in our reach and they brighten our day. Connect with us via social media or email. Twitter and Instagram is at HeReadSheRead. And our email address is HeReadSheReadPodcast at gmail.com. So if you have a book that you think we should buddy read, or if you need some book suggestions, or if you need marriage advice, just kidding, we're not experts, (laughs) send us a question. Thank you for listening. And remember, the couple that reads together... Finds that dame who's reading a book and decides that you want to spend the rest of your life with her. (laughs) Of all the gin joints in all the world. Of all the bookstores in all the world. Oh, that was a good one. (laughs) You had to walk into mine. (laughs) 